Well, greetings, brethren. It's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, speak to you once again. You know, when we look through the New Testament, there's no writer that God used to prepare the New Testament who was used to prepare more books, to write more books than the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was used to actually write 14 books uh, out of the uh, entire New Testament. And yet, when we read what Peter wrote in Second Peter, right at the end of Peter's life, as he was putting together the first canonization of the New Testament, he spoke about Paul and his writings. He wrote in Second Peter chapter three and verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. You know, to rest is to... Uh, to pry loose, to, in effect, take from its context. Uh, if you arrest a, a piece of masonry, a, a stone or a brick out of something, uh, you take a crowbar or you take some instrument and you pry it loose and you pull it out of the context of the wall where it is. When the Apostle Paul's writings were rested, what that meant is they same sort of people did to other scriptures, what it means is they were taken out of context. They were pried loose. And so we find that there's no one uh, whose writings are more misunderstood than those of the Apostle Paul. And yet, brethren, there are many things that we can learn from the Apostle Paul, from his life and from his writings. Uh, the Bible tells us about him, about a number of things about him. And one of the remarkable things we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul went through an experience that totally changed his life. It turned everything upside down, or maybe more properly stated, it turned everything right side up. Made a tremendous difference in what the Apostle Paul really saw and realized. Now, if we go back to the book of Acts, we're first introduced to Paul uh, or Saul, as he was known by his Hebrew name, <clears throat> here in the book of Acts chapter 7. Now, the story picks up in Acts chapter 7 uh, with a, a young man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was a very zealous young man, very fervent uh, in his uh, dedication to God and belief in God's way. And Stephen had been uh, speaking, and so we're told in Acts chapter 6, reading about Stephen, that... Uh, uh, Stephen, in Acts 6, verse 8, was full of faith and power, did a number of wonders and miracles among the people. And in certain of these synagogues, as Stephen spoke, we're told in verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, you know, when you can't resist the wisdom by which someone speaks, you're left with only two alternatives. One is to admit that they're right and you're wrong. You can't resist their wisdom. What they say makes sense. Now, that was not the approach that Stephen's listeners or many of them took. The, the other approach, when you cannot resist, you can't uh, be able to show where they're wrong, is to get mad and attack the person. And that's what they did with Stephen. Uh, notice uh, in verse 11 of Acts 6, they suborned men. 
which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, to suborn, that's a legal term. You suborn perjury. In other words, uh, you pay someone to tell a lie, to perjure himself. I want to call your attention to that because it's uh, very important uh, to understand. They suborned men. They, they hired people to perjure themselves. And they, what they said was, we have heard him, heard Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses. Notice here in... Uh, uh, going on, verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and uh, they came upon him, they caught him, brought him to the council, and they set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy uh, place and the law. Now, I want to call your attention to something, brethren. You know, if Stephen gave the kind of sermons that the Protestants talk about, you would not have to go out and hire false witnesses to say that you heard him teach against the law. You know, you wouldn't have to go out and hire people and bribe people to go tell lies on Billy Graham and say, did you know that Billy Graham teaches that you don't have to keep the commandments, that, that you can keep Sunday instead of the Sabbath? You don't have to go out and bribe people to uh, teach or to uh, bear witness of, of what the Protestants teach. No, what they accused Stephen of was a lie. That's why you hire a false witness. You're hiring him to tell a lie. The lie was that Stephen was teaching against the law. This is just sort of a, uh, let's say, a, a minor point in the context of the overall sermon, but I think it's important that we understand that you can prove from start to finish through the New Testament that Jesus Christ and the New Testament apostles and the New Testament church did not, did not go contrary to the law of God, did not lay aside or say the law is inconsequential or you don't have to keep the commandments. So here was Stephen brought to trial on the testimony of false witnesses, men that had been bribed to say that he taught against Moses, that he taught against the law. They had to be bribed to tell this lie because it simply was not true. Now, if you go on through chapter 7, you find Stephen's defense as he is uh, standing here before the, uh, the council, before the people. And finally, uh, they get so outraged, so upset at what Stephen said, that in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Saul is here described as a young man. Now, we don't know exactly how old he was, but very likely he was still in his 20s at this point. Uh, Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry, which lasted up until he was 33 and a half. Uh, his original disciples were all probably around the same age, probably uh, maybe a little bit younger. So if Jesus started his ministry at 30, then most of his disciples were probably in their 20s. Uh, some may have been... Uh, a little bit older, but, but basically around that age. Uh, Paul, or Saul as he was known at this point, was perhaps a little bit younger, two or three than, uh, years younger than, than they, because uh, here we are 
about 33 A.D., a couple of years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he's described as a young man, probably still in his 20s. And he, we're told, in chapter 8, verse 1, was consenting unto Stephen's death. He was a zealous young man. Now, zeal is sometimes more the characteristic of young men than is wisdom. And uh, Saul was a man who, uh, a very zealous young man, very dedicated, very fervent in his beliefs. And uh, he was really wanting to see this so-called new religion of Christianity wiped out. So he was approving of the death of Stephen. And in the aftermath of that uh, death of Stephen, there was a great persecution against the church that was at Jerusalem. And uh, they were all scattered abroad throughout the whole area uh, except for the apostles. And uh, that, of course, just continued to spread the word because as they went back into Galilee and they went into Samaria and they went into the surrounding areas, they talked about why they had left Judea. Well, devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And we find in verse 3 that Saul, young Saul, made havoc of the church. He entered into homes. He brought out men and women and brought them before the council, brought them to trial, had them thrown into prison. And, of course, brethren, just people began to flee. They began to leave Jerusalem, and everyone that could got out of town, and they went to the surrounding areas. Uh, Philip is described as having gone to Samaria. Well, if we come on down through the story, uh, we find... Uh, Picking up young Saul again in chapter 9 and verse 1, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, any who were practicing the way of Christianity, who were acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, men, women, didn't matter, he wanted to bring them bound to Jerusalem. Well, he journeyed and he was on his way to Damascus. Oh, he was upset. He was mad. He was anxious to put a stop, to stamp out this whole concept that Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah. You know, Saul thought he had it all figured out. He had grown up uh, a very uh, dedicated young man in terms of the Jewish uh, approach to life. He was, his father was a uh, relatively well-to-do uh, merchant in Tarsus, a tent maker. Uh, Tarsus was on a main uh, Roman trade route, and so uh, caravans out of the east on their way, uh, on their way through, coming through Asia Minor, on their way to uh, uh, go into Europe, uh, to go uh, there to uh, into Greece. They would pass through this area, and so uh, young Saul grew up. And a family that was prosperous enough that when he got on up into adolescence, his father actually sent him to Jerusalem to study at the feet of the most uh, well-known rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And young Saul grew up and he really took seriously the things that he learned. And he was serious about wanting to serve God and wanting to do the things that he thought God would approve of. And... This is evidenced in this zeal. He's going to now go and stamp out uh, this heresy that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, as you know the story, as he got near Damascus, suddenly there came a light out of heaven that shined all around him, and uh, uh, he fell to the earth. Have you ever been hit straight in the face with this bright, shining sort of searchlight? It can just be overwhelming. 
And uh, he closed his eyes, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, you go back up to the previous verse, the first thing he said. So he basically asked two questions. One, he says, who are you? And then he says, what do you want me to do? Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, he was frightened. He, he said, who are you? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? You know what it is to kick against the pricks? Back in those days, they used draft animals. Frequently, they used oxen in pulling plows and carts and things of that sort. And oxen have a bad habit. Uh, they will kick, kick backwards. Now, you don't want to be standing behind an ox when he kicks. Uh, but yet, if you're driving along a, a cart or you're pushing a plow or you're uh, dealing with some of these things, uh, it's real easy to uh, be in the wrong place when the ox kicks backward. Uh, so the result was that they had this contrivance that they uh, put behind the ox, part of the harness, that had uh, sharp goads on the end, a sharp wooden uh, stick that normally if the oxen is just walking, then they, they don't feel anything. If the oxen are walking, they don't feel anything. It's not a problem. But if they start to kick back, uh, this uh, sharp-pointed stick uh, sticks into the uh, soft, fleshy part of their leg. And so it hurts. And the ox, uh, after a while, even an ox figures out he doesn't want to keep doing that. These were the pricks or the goads. Something there that, that when you do something, when you perform a certain action, there's a, there's a prick. There's something that, that sort of pokes you, uh, that makes it uncomfortable. You ever had something like that in your own life? You know, Paul, or Saul as he was known, was rushing about trying to wipe out Christianity. And yet some of the things he was doing, they interfered with really deep down it bothered him. And he didn't even want to stop to think about it. You know, if he stopped and stood still very long, uh, then maybe he would hear the, uh, the, the voice of God telling him something. And he didn't want to listen to that. He wanted to just block it out, just keep doing this, keep doing that, uh, just driving ahead and driving ahead. So he struck down with his light, and this booming voice comes out, and it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Then he, Saul was trembling and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to arise and go into the city and it will be told to you what you shall do. You know, sometimes God doesn't give you the complete answer all at once. The first thing Saul needed to do was just go on into the city and think about it for a while. So he went on in. He went to, uh, to a man's home. Uh, there on Straight Street and wound up spending the, uh, uh, over the course of the next three days fasting and prayer. Now, he's blind. When he, when he gets up uh, from the ground after having been struck with this light, he can't see anything. Absolutely blind. Somebody leads him into town, brings him to this home, and he's there. And over the course of the next three days, he spends a lot of time praying. He can't see anything around him. And yet, ironically, for the first time in his life, he began to see. He only began to see after he became blind. His eyes were put out, but now he began to think about things, really praying to God, fasting during the course of these three days. And 
begins to have more insight and more understanding, things begin to come together in a certain way. Now, as we follow on through the story, we find that uh, Christ came to uh, a disciple by the name of Ananias uh, there in, in Damascus. And he said, Ananias, I said, I got a job for you to do. I want you to go over to Straight Street. I want you to inquire uh, for one man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, he's blind. He's there praying. I want you to find him, and I want you to anoint him, to lay hands on him, pray for him that he'll be healed. And Ananias said, uh, Lord, uh, are we talking about the same fellow? I, I heard about this guy. I think I know the one you're talking about. He came down here with arrest warrants. He's, he's been causing a lot of trouble. You know, maybe if he's blind, we ought to just sort of leave him that way. That seemed to be Ananias' approach. But the Lord said, look, you go your way, verse 15. He's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I've got a job for him to do. I have chosen him. I've picked him for a particular responsibility. I'm going to show him what great things he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went on down and he greeted him. Uh, he prayed for him, laid hands on him. Uh, the blindness fell away like scales falling from his eyes. Saul rose up and went and was baptized, received the Holy Spirit, uh, came and ate. And, you know, in these three days, his whole life has reversed course. He sees things with a clarity he had never, ever seen before. Well, his immediate response, he had access to the synagogues. He was recognized. He came with credentials from the high priest. So he marched into the synagogues. But you talk about shocking folks. He began to proclaim to them, you know, Jesus of Nazareth really is the Messiah. Let me show it to you right here from the Scriptures. Well, people couldn't imagine. They just were amazed uh, that here this man who was taking people off to prison well, trouble was stirred up in Damascus right away. Uh, the disciples actually had to help us all escape from Damascus because there were people who were out to kill him. They were so infuriated at what he had done. He came to Jerusalem uh, to meet uh, the church there and the apostles. And most people really didn't want to get close to him, didn't want to talk to him. They were suspicious of him, suspicious of his motives. Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles and introduced him, told them the story. He spent a couple of weeks there. And then they told him, said, you know what? Why don't you go on back to Tarsus? Go back where you came from and we'll call you when we need you. Now, you read that in verse 30. It's interesting as you go through the account. You see, there were a lot of lessons that Saul had to learn. And Certainly the most vital was what occurred on the road to Damascus and in those ensuing three days. But that was not the end of the lessons that God was working with him to help him understand. You see, one of the things he had to do, uh, he was zealous, he was ready to get started, he was ready to get started right now. Do you realize that from the time God called him, to, from the time of his baptism until the time that he began his active ministry that is described uh, back in Acts chapter 13, do you realize that a period of several years went by? You see, the disciples were not in a hurry 
to one except the fact that he really was converted. There were some of them that thought, well, this might be a trick. You know, he was tested. It's not easy to have someone who is suspicious of you, particularly when you know how genuine and sincere you are. Well, some of the very top ones, in fact, the only one who would really uh, give much credence to him was Barnabas. And Barnabas was a very encouraging sort of fellow and one to, wanted to believe the best of people. And he took him and introduced him, but then he still had to go back to, to Tarsus. And he waited there, and, and uh, several years went by. Well, as you uh, come down uh, through the story, we find that... Uh, uh, in Acts chapter 11, that uh, Barnabas was sent by the apostles to Antioch to serve as the pastor. And at this point, Barnabas went uh, and found Saul and brought him to Antioch and began to uh, introduce him into the ministry. And he served there and actually went with Barnabas to take a, an offering up to uh, Jerusalem as recorded in chapter 12. In chapter 13, God led the uh, leaders there in uh, Antioch to recognize that he had called uh, Saul and Barnabas to send them on an evangelistic journey to send them out from Antioch. Uh, and uh, so they were uh, ordained with fasting. It's described here in chapter 13, verse 3, very likely the point at which uh, they were set apart as apostles and they were sent forth. And we have the story as they uh, come in uh, on, this, on this journey. Now, it's very interesting because in Acts chapter 13, we uh, uh, come to the first sermon that we have recorded that Paul preached. Now, it's interesting. You know, there are not a whole lot of sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts. There are several, and they're at crucial junctures, and they give us a glimpse of what was said. The sermon that Paul preached that is recorded here in Acts 13 was given in uh, Antioch of Pisidia. Now, if you look at a map, you'll find that Antioch of Pisidia, the way he was traveling, Antioch of Pisidia was a part of the Roman province of Galatia. There are four cities mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, Pisidia and Antioch, uh, Derbe, Iconium, and Lystra, that were cities of Galatia. Now, the book of Galatians, you know what Paul wrote has been twisted and distorted, has been wrested, taken out of its context more than any other writer in Scripture. And perhaps more than any other thing that Paul wrote, the book of Galatians has been taken out of context, has been arrested and distorted. You know, it's interesting. God gives us right here in Acts 13 the background of the book of Galatians. He gives us the very first sermon that Paul preached in Galatia. And when you understand and you look carefully at the details of, of what occurred here at Pisidian Antioch, uh, there in the uh, province of Galatia, then you understand the setting of the book of Galatians, which gives you a great deal of insight into not only what it uh, does mean, but also what it doesn't mean. Paul stood up in chapter 13 and verse 16, and he beckoned with his hand, and he said, Men of Israel, and you that fear God, give audience. Now understand right off that we're talking about two different groups in the audience. The men of Israel, and you that fear God. The God-fearers, as they were known, 
were Gentiles who had come to believe that the God of Israel was truly the, the real God, the Creator God. They had abandoned the idolatry of the Greco-Roman world, and they were coming to the synagogue to hear the law read, to begin an understanding of God's whole plan and purpose. Now, Paul addresses both groups, men of Israel. These are those who were descended uh, from uh, ancient Israel. These were the men who were uh, by their heritage, uh, by their bloodline. They were Jews. They were descendants of Abraham. And along with them, sitting there in the synagogue, were Gentiles who were God-fearers. And then Paul begins to sort of recap the history of the people and how God had worked with them down through time, brings the story down to King David, mentioned in verse 22, how David was a man after God's own heart that would fulfill his will. And verse 23, of this man's seed, of David's seed, has God, according to his purpose, raised up unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, Paul, at this point, introduces that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah of the seed of David. Well, he goes on in verse 26. He says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you fears God. So again, both groups are being addressed. To you is the word of this salvation sent. He goes on and explains how the rulers in Jerusalem had been responsible for crucifying Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days by those that came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were his witnesses unto the people. So we declare unto you glad tidings. We declare good news. How that the promise that was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children in that he raised up Jesus again. So he goes on to quote the second psalm, showing how this applies to Jesus Christ. It didn't apply to David. It was talking about Jesus Christ, the one whom, verse 37, God raised again. He saw no corruption. His body didn't decay. He didn't go back to the dust. He was raised from the dead, in total contrast to ancient King David, who long since uh, returned to the dust from whence he came. So he goes on, his conclusion, verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, if you want, in one verse, the subject of the book of Galatians, it's right here. It was what Paul stressed the first time he was in Galatia. It is how do you become justified? How is it that you gain access to God? How is it that you move from a state of guilt to innocence? Because guilt estranges us from God. And it is therefore necessary that we become justified. We become innocent in his sight. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that the law of Moses could not provide justification. Now, when we come to this subject, we come to a subject that Paul came to understand and emphasize, a subject that he talked about 
uh, more than perhaps any of the other writers of the New Testament, and there's a reason for it, because it was a subject that Paul had probably misunderstood more fully and more completely in his pre-conversion days, because Paul had grown up a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees had their own means of justification. You see, they sought to take laws and rituals that applied to the priesthood, and they sought to apply them in their lives. You remember the story that's given back in Mark chapter 7 where uh, Jesus and his disciples uh, were there and they were eating, and the disciples or the Pharisees were shocked that his disciples had not first washed their hands according to the, quote, tradition of the elders. Now, why was this whole issue of the washing of hands? They, they were not discussing the matter of sanitation or hygiene. You see, the Pharisees had concocted a lot of human rules. In their mind, the way to righteousness was to invent more rules. That was what they saw the need for. You know what? God didn't give enough rules. And so they came with these laws about the washing of hands. That was because, you know, if you were walking through the marketplace, you might have brushed against someone uh, who was contaminated or defiled in some way, and here you contracted the defilement, and now if you ate food and you uh, picked up something with your hands and put it in your mouth, uh, you were now becoming defiled. Well, they totally missed the point of what defilement was all about. They thought everything could be uh, relegated to uh, all sorts of, of little minor do's and don'ts. You know, they got into the whole subject of how to keep the Sabbath. Well, we all look at that, and anyone who is convicted of the Scriptures and has a godly approach recognizes that it's necessary to keep the Sabbath holy. God tells us that. We're to recognize that this is a day that is sanctified. It's set apart. It's different. But you see, the Pharisees had an approach. Their question was, they said, well, okay, the Sabbath is holy. You can't work on the Sabbath. That's very plain. What exactly is work? What if you come bearing this whole big burden of agricultural produce into town that you want to sell? Is that work? Well, sure, that's work. You can't do that. You can point to specific verses in the Old Testament where that was forbidden. Well, what about if you come into town and you're carrying one dried fig in your pocket? Maybe you're going to eat it for a snack a little later. Is that work? Well, no, they decided one dried fig was. Well, what about two? Well, what about three? And you see, they, they drew the line. Anything uh, more than the weight of three dried figs constituted a burden. The Pharisees were loaded down with all sorts of rules that they had invented. Now, they also had ways to... Uh, they didn't like to admit that they made uh, very many mistakes, but, you know, everybody has to acknowledge that they're not perfect. And so, what if you have done something? Well, the Pharisees uh, viewed that prayer and the giving of alms uh, counted as merit. You know, that this is a concept that has been misunderstood in virtually every aspect of the world's religion. You know, I remember years ago, I was a kid probably about 10 years old, and um, our family was Baptist, and that's what I'd grown up with. Uh, but my mother had an uncle uh, who was by 
this time, at that point in time, uh, was a very elderly man. But he had uh, become Catholic in his early years because he had married a Catholic back in those days. Uh, that was uh, pretty well required. And uh, uh, the first Catholic service that I ever attended uh, was Uncle Sam's funeral. And it was quite a, a production. Back in those days, they were still using Latin in the Mass. And, you know, I sat there wide-eyed, uh, wide never having seen anything like this and all the chanting and the lighting of candles and all the various things. And after the funeral was over, his wife came up to my mother and they were talking. And my mother had uh, sent a, a small gift, I think about $10, uh, to the family a short time before Uncle Sam had died. He was down ill uh, at home for uh, quite a while and she had sent a gift to, to get something for him. And uh, her aunt came up and said, well, look, you know, we never had a chance to spend that and I'll get it back to you if you want. My mother said, oh, no, you don't need to do that. You can use it for something. And at that point, her aunt said, well, I'll tell you what we would like to use it for, if you don't mind. She said, now, now you know how Sam was. Well, everybody in the family knew how Uncle Sam was. Uh, and uh, they, she said, you know, the priest said it was going to take a long time to pray him out of purgatory. And that was the concept, of course, the concept the Catholic Church has taught for centuries. The idea that very, very few go to heaven because they're really not good enough. But there are ways of getting there. You know, you can go to purgatory and sort of sweat it out, serve out your sentence, uh, be punished, purged, as it were. But there are ways of speeding up the process. Extra prayers can be said. Masses can be said. The merits of the saints can be applied in your, your stead. You know, that concept, which was a concept that uh, uh, I was uh, really a little bit taken aback by because I'd never heard about that before. Uh, the idea, of course, I guess everybody in the family realized if there was a purgatory, Uncle Sam would have certainly been there. And I'm sure that uh, the priests had a gold mine for as long as any of the, his immediate family lived because they were collecting money on trying to get him out of purgatory, speed up the process. But you know, that's not unique in terms of the teaching, that specific bent that the Catholic Church has used. But it's not uniquely a Catholic teaching. The idea uh, throughout virtually all of the world's religions and many of the Jews, including the Pharisees, had accepted the concept and that was that somehow you needed to do enough good deeds to counterbalance the bad things. You needed to earn your way. How do you become justified? How do you move from a state of guilt to innocence? What the Apostle Paul showed was, look, no amount of washings, no amount of ceremonial ritual, no amount of sacrifices, burnt offerings, drink offerings, no amount of any of these things is going to earn you a relationship with God. You cannot be justified. You cannot move from a state of guilt to innocence, based on what you do. Jesus Christ came and He gave His life. He paid the penalty in our stead. And that's what the Apostle Paul brings out. When you get back to the book of Galatians, you find the story is still going on. Well, maybe if you get circumcised, maybe if you do this, maybe if you do that. The whole issue is justification. And the whole point of justification is you move from guilt to innocence through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul came to understand that concept and it absolutely changed 
the whole course of his life. It changed his whole relationship with God. Because no longer was his relationship with God uh, simply about what he could do to make himself good enough. You know, the attribute that the Pharisees had, of course, many of them became very hypocritical, very superficial. Uh, They just focused on the externals and on the formal things, the outward things. Uh, For so many of them, it became a religion of formalism. And you know, we've seen that. We've seen that sometimes in God's church. Uh, There are people who uh, sort of put on their religion uh, along with their Sabbath suit. You know, they, ha- they, they put it on, wear it to church, come home, hang it up, uh, and the rest of the week they go along being themselves. Religion is not something you put on to impress other people with. That was the way the Pharisees looked at it. Now, there were other Pharisees, and certainly uh, young Saul was probably one of them, who was very sincere, who was very zealous, but you know, he couldn't measure up. He couldn't make himself good enough. He had conflicts of guilt and, and as he would honestly look at things and evaluate things. You go through the book of Romans and he talks about some of that. He talks about some of the battles that he went through in his own mind. And the solution was not just running around doing stuff. What he came to understand. Well, let's go back to Philippians. I want to show you a little of what he came to understand. Because it was a complete about-face. We pick it up in Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about those who have confidence based on the flesh. And he said in verse 3 of Philippians 3, he says, We are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, our confidence does not rest on who we are, what we are, what we've done. Our confidence does not derive from ourselves. It derives from God and our relationship with Him. He said, you know, if we're going to look at confidence, confidence based on the flesh, I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinks that he has whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I mourn. I was circumcised the eighth day, just as the law says. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and is touching the law a Pharisee. I was not only a Jew, I was not only a circumcised Jew, one who could trace my genealogy back, I was strict. I was very careful. I was a very strict Jew. I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You know, I wasn't one who just paid lip service or said, well, somebody ought to do something about those folks. I was out there doing it. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. I got up, I disrupted my business, I disrupted the things I was doing, and I went chasing after these people. I really meant it. He went on to say, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, I was very careful, I was very meticulous, I went through all of these ceremonies, I did everything that I could 
what things were gained to me, those I count loss for Christ. He says, you know, everything I used to take pride in, everything that used to give me confidence, I count it nothing. All of the esteem, all of the respect, all of the status, all of the things that I used to have that used to be so valuable to me, things that I wanted, they're nothing. Things that were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. Brethren, do you understand what that means? Do you, as you look at your life, do you count your past, all the things that you used to take pride in and confidence in and make you feel good? You say it's worth nothing. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count it nothing. It's, it's, it's worthless. In order that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. I don't want to be dependent on what I can do for myself. My own righteousness, which is of the law. But that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I would already attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, he said, but this thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forth to the things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul sought a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You know, the Pharisees sought to make themselves good enough. And their solution to being good enough was to add more rules. Uh, they, uh, in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., they had a council uh, a couple of, three decades later, a council at Yavna, uh, and uh, they decided that in place of the sacrifices, they would substitute uh, prayer and good deeds. And that the atonement for sin was something that uh, they sort of uh, enshrined that, made that an official teaching of the religion of the rabbis. But a lot of that was already extant at the time that Paul was growing up. This was the concept that so many had. That righteousness is something you earn, it's something you do that makes you good enough, it's something that you can put together a formula that in some way will impress God. And what Paul came to realize is what I need is to know Him. To have a deep, intimate, personal relationship. Brethren, what is God doing? What is the ultimate purpose that God is working out? God is building a family. God is building a family, the family of God. 
You and I have the opportunity right now as begotten children of God to ultimately be born again, born of God, born into the family of God at the resurrection. Our vile bodies shall be made like unto His glorious body. God's building a family, the family of God. Paul explains that, talks about it in Ephesians, and talks about God the Father from whom the whole family takes its name. Understand something. Healthy families have healthy relationships. When you have families, you have relationships. Healthy relationships certainly are based on uh, communication. They're based on knowing someone. You can't have a relationship with someone uh, unless you know them. And you can't have more than a superficial relationship unless you know them on more than a superficial level. How deeply do you know God? How deeply do you know Jesus Christ? Know Him in a very personal sense. Not just simply know about Him, not simply have read something or heard something, but know Him. That's what Paul said right here. I want the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him. That I may know Him. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul said, I want to know Him. I want to experience Him. I want ultimately to experience the power of His resurrection. I want to experience that and to enter into that state of glory with Him. And that may mean that here and now I may have to experience the fellowship of His suffering. I may have to suffer for righteousness' sake. But that's okay because I want to know Him. I want to fit in with Him. What do you and I want to fit in with? What do we want to fit in with the most? You know, the tendency of human beings is we want to fit in with our immediate crowd. You know, there was a time when Saul wanted to fit in with the other Pharisees. He wanted to impress them. He wanted them to point at him and say, Boy, that, that young fellow, he's a real comer. Boy, he's really zealous. He's going to go somewhere. You know, sort of the story uh, back uh, uh, years ago, you know, when the hippies were going along and, and uh, were, uh, that was the, the big thing. And, and uh, all these young people uh, had the idea that they were trying to fit in with this. And, of course, you still see that, various... Uh, uh, things as you look around, but the, the classic story of the fellow who, uh, whose excuse, you know, why is he uh, uh, showing up looking like this? Oh, well, he was trying to, uh, you know, he, he wanted to be an individual. He, he didn't want to be, uh, he didn't want to, he, he wanted to be an individual. He wanted to be just like all his friends. Well, that was the point. He wanted to fit in with them. That was his world. They were all wearing long hair. Well, he wanted to wear long hair. They were all wearing sandals. He wanted to wear sandals. You know, it didn't matter. It wouldn't have mattered what it was they were doing. You can look around and you can see things all over. People, everybody wants to fit in with somebody. Who is it that you and I want to fit in with? You know who the Apostle Paul wanted to fit in with? He wanted to fit in with Jesus Christ more than anyone or anything. That's where he wanted to get his acceptance. That's where he wanted to get his approval. It wasn't a matter of what everybody else thought. It wasn't a matter of what everybody else was doing. He wanted, he said, that I may know Him. 
I want to really know Him. I want to experience Him. I want to spend time with Him. I want to understand Him. I want to be transformed and changed from the inside out. See, Paul began to realize all the things he had looked to for status, all the things he had looked to that gave him approval, that gave him acceptance, that seemingly put him one up in his dealings with others. Those things were inconsequential. All the things that he used to uh, give great importance to, he now counted as worthless, as nothing. Because his whole life revolved around the fact that he wanted a deep personal relationship with God and with his Savior Jesus Christ. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I want to fit in with him. It changed his whole view and his whole outlook. God used him to write so many different scriptures. You know, the famous one, one Mr. Meredith quotes many times out of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul wrote that. And, you know, when he wrote it, he wasn't just saying nice-sounding words. He meant it. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Now, to what extent can you and I say, honestly, the same thing? Because crucify was not just simply a nice word that Paul had heard somewhere. It was a brutal form of death. And you know what? In his lifetime, no telling how many people he saw crucified on the hillsides. To crucify meant to be put to death. He said, you know, it's not just that Jesus Christ was put to death for me. I die along with Him because I, the old man, the old values, the old ways, all the things that have made me, me. I am crucified with Christ. The old man is dead. The old man is put to death. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, brethren, when you really understand that, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not just sort of believing in God. You believe in God? James asked that question. He says, you believe in God, you do well. Let me tell you, the demons also believe and tremble. It's not enough to just, quote, believe in God. Do you know God? Paul did. He went through an experience that led him to put to death the old man. All of his ambitions, all of his goals, all the things that were important to him, all the things that gave him status in the eyes of others, they dropped behind. You know, when you go through and you read the book of Philippians, Philippians is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote it while he was in jail in Roman prison. He said in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 20, he said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul's life 
was absolutely wrapped up in trying to please God. He wanted to imitate Jesus Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ. When I get up in the morning, that's what I'm thinking about. How can I be more like Christ? How can I fit in with Him? How can I let Christ live in me more fully today? To die is gain. You know, if I die, if I close my eyes, I'm going to come up in the resurrection and I'm going to see Him. So Paul said, if I live, well, that's great, because to live is Christ. To live is to walk with Him day by day. You know, the Apostle Paul went through all sorts of things. Did he know what it was like to have his feelings hurt? Did he know what it was like to be betrayed? Did he know what it was like, uh, some of these things? Well, we're going to see that he very, very certainly did. He went on to emphasize here in, uh, in the book of Philippians this, this whole theme, having the mind of Christ, as he said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. You know, there was a time when uh, Saul was an up-and-coming young man, a zealous young man, a man who was pursuing status. One of the things that Jesus tells us about the Pharisees is they wanted status. They loved to be recognized and called rabbi or teacher. They uh, loved the chief seats. They loved status. They loved to be looked up to and pointed at and, and really recognized as someone of very high status. You know, Paul looked at himself and he realized, you know, there was a time in his life when that was what he wanted. And he said, here in Philippians, as he talks about Jesus Christ's example, and he says in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Christ? He said, well, when he was in the form of God, when he was with the Father, when he was uh, God in heaven, there the Word, there with the Father, when he was with God, in the form of God, he thought it not something to be seized or grasped, be taken and held to be equal with God. But rather, he emptied himself. That's literally what it means. He emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross, the most ignominious death, execution as a criminal, hung there for all to gaze at and to ridicule, a painful death, a horrible public spectacle. Here was Jesus Christ, who was not so concerned about status, that, oh, I could never do that, I could never do this. He emptied himself of that power, that glory that he had shared with the Father for eternity. He came as a human being, as flesh. Came in the form of a man. He humbled himself. And he died. Paul said, that's the mind of Christ. You see, it was totally contrary from the mind that Paul had grown up with as a Pharisee. It was a totally different view of life. You know, Paul went through many things. 
and he describes many of these things in his in his life. He describes it back in Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven. Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul is talking about some who were laying emphasis on status and talking about who they were. Do you know who I am? Kind of a thing. Paul said, "Look, Second Corinthians eleven twenty-two. He said, "Are they Hebrews? Is that where they get their status from? So am I." Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Are they really servants of Christ? Now, he's speaking foolishly because obviously they weren't, but they were claiming to be. He said, I'm more. You know, you you want to talk about serving? He said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, of the Jews five times. I received 40 stripes save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils by my own countrymen. In perils by brethren. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness. Painfulness and watchings often and hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness. Besides those things, that which comes upon me, besides the things that are without, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul said, look, I understand. What you want to measure, you you want to, you know, in that sense, uh, sort of measure your trials against Paul. Would you like to meet up with him in the resurrection and tell him how bad you had it? I don't think I would. I think I'd walk away pretty embarrassed because you look at what Paul went through. How many times have you and I been beaten because we were faithful to the Word of God? How many times? All of these various things. And you know, where did he go? Well, his own countrymen, the Jews, they turned against him. The Gentiles, the heathen. Uh, They turned against him. And you know what? There were even those that he calls false brethren. People that, you know, supposedly in the church community, and yet they turned against him. They accused him. They said things. Now, did Paul have some superior brand of human nature? Did Paul somehow, well, he was the Apostle Paul. All this stuff just went sailing right off. Notice what he said right here in verse 29. He said, who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's offended and I burn not? You think that all of this just goes in one ear and out the other and nothing ever bothers me? You think I don't have times when when I'm hurt? You don't think that I hear some of these things? Uh, Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's offended and I burn not? No, you know what he said, as he goes on talking about this, and he talks uh, on down in chapter chapter 12, he said, uh, uh, verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that were given unto me, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. This thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace 
is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then am I strong. You see, his whole perspective changed. Oh, yes, when he was going through certain things and certain trials, he wanted it to depart. He wanted it to leave him behind. He didn't want to have to go through some of these things and to suffer. Whatever his particular thorn in the flesh was, at least on three specific occasions, he besought God, remove it. And undoubtedly thought, look, I can just, if I could just be rid of this problem, everything would be so much better. I could serve so much more. I could do so much more. Please deliver me. You know, God's message was, my grace is sufficient. My gifts are sufficient. I will enable you to do everything you need to do. And the credit, the glory isn't going to be yours. It's not going to be because you had so much strength and you had this and you had that. See, it's going to be from me. God gave Paul many uh, great gifts, used him in a powerful way. But Paul went through experiences that gave him a relationship. He pursued a relationship with God. A relationship with Jesus Christ. Not simply a superficial knowledge, not just simply knowing certain facts, but he pursued a relationship. He walked with Him. His whole priorities in life changed. If we go back in the book of Romans, we begin to understand some of what Paul wrote here in Romans chapter 10. Again, discussing the subject of righteousness. He said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. You know, there was a time in Paul's life when he had a zeal for God, but that zeal was not according to knowledge. What does that mean? How were the Jews ignorant of God? Well, notice what they were ignorant of. Verse 3, They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Can that happen to us? Can we go about so busily trying to make ourselves good enough to establish our own righteousness, to look righteous, to uh, somehow measure up to humanly devised rules in the eyes of others, so busily establishing our own righteousness that we don't submit to the righteousness of God? The Apostle Paul, during his life, learned that lesson. He learned to submit, to yield to the righteousness of God. Christ living in us. When Jesus Christ walked this earth, He absolutely, perfectly followed the way of righteousness. He was righteous in every aspect, in every thought, in every motive, in every intent, in the way He dealt with other people. You know, humanly, brethren, our tendency as human beings 
is to make excuses for ourselves and to blame others. Now, that's not new, and it's not just unique to our time. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God confronted Adam and said, Adam, have you eaten of the tree that I told you to leave alone? The first thing that came to Adam's mind was to make an excuse. He was asked a simple question, yes or no, did you eat of the tree? Adam said, well, now, Lord, uh, the woman, the one that you gave me, she ate of the tree. And I just sort of took a little bite. You know, it really wasn't my fault. Partly it was God's fault because you gave her to me, and the rest of it was the woman's fault because she's the one that took it and she sort of instigated it. I just was there and I just sort of took a bite. You know, a matter of gossip comes up. Is that the way we would say, well, now look, I didn't, I was just, you know, uh, these other people, they were gossiping. I was just standing there. I just maybe said a little bit, but it really wasn't my fault. Whatever it might be. You know, he asked Eve, he said, Eve, is that true? Eve, did you take of the tree? And she said, well, now the serpent, he beguiled me. Wasn't my fault either. I was tricked. You know, God didn't even want to hear the devil's excuse. He didn't even ask him the question. Paul understood that. We live in a society, I mean, that's been true of human nature from the beginning. We live in a society, uh, look at all the lawyers who have become millionaires uh, in litigation that is based on trying to blame whatever happens on somebody else. Those that were suing a big tobacco, those who wanted to sue uh, uh, McDonald's or wanted to sue this or wanted to sue that. It's, oh, you know, uh, this terrible thing has happened to me. And it was somebody else's fault. People want to blame others. You know, they try to establish their own righteousness. They've not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law. He is what the law points to. He is the end result for righteousness to everyone that believes. You see, we're told here in verse 9, If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved, for with the heart, Man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The kind of belief he's talking about is not a superficial belief. It's not just belief from the head. It's not just acknowledging certain facts. If you believe it from the heart, it will change your life. It's the most real thing to you. The greatest reality in your life is that Jesus Christ not only died to pay for sin, He was raised from the grave by the power of the Father. He has ascended on high and He's going to come back to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you can be in that resurrection. You can experience the power of His resurrection. You can be made part of the glorified family of God. See, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. If you believe from your heart that God really raised him from the dead, he's coming back, he's alive. If you believe it from the heart, it will change your life. Saul the Pharisee became Paul the Apostle. His whole set of values changed. His whole approach to life. Everything about him underwent a remarkable change. 
Because the things that ordered his priorities in life changed. He saw the big picture. He got a totally different perspective. The things that used to really be important to him, he counted as nothing. That's because he really saw the big picture. He saw the reality and he believed it to the depths of his being. His relationship was not a superficial relationship. It was not an empty or a hollow relationship. It was real. The relationship he had with the Father and with Jesus Christ was more intense and more real than any human relationship that he had. It ordered his life. Brethren, you and I can experience that same sort of relationship. But we can only do so if we really see what Paul saw. And if we believe it from the heart. And our whole lives will experience that change. And we will not just simply say the words that I'm crucified with Christ. We will understand what it means. The flesh and all of its poles and all of the things connected. And we are alive with it. The old man is buried and we've come up to walk in newness of life. The New Testament gives us many things about many people. Fourteen out of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. A young man who was very zealous but whose zeal was misdirected. He went through a traumatic experience and he learned that his whole perspective had been upside down. He had been busily rushing about trying to make himself impressive, trying to make himself good enough, trying to be strict enough. And what he came to understand was there was a surrender from the heart. A putting to death of the old man and all the old vanities and all of the things that had been so much a part of him. And the pursuance of a totally different life with a different set of priorities. That I may be found in him not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is by faith. The righteousness that is the evidence of a relationship with God. Abraham had it. Paul had it. And you and I can have it too if we will pursue with our whole hearts that righteousness which is through faith.